0: We're going to go fast and furious through the text here today because i got no more than 15 to 17 minutes to do my little devotional. So, verse 1, let's pick it up. It says, Then I saw another sign. The eye here is the Apostle John. Then I saw another sign. This is the fifth of uh, about, I think it's seven signs after Revelation 12. It starts with Revelation 12, 1, 12, 3, 13, 13, and 14. And then this one is the fifth one in 15:1. It says, I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing. And here's the sign at the end of verse 1 here. Seven angels with seven plagues which are the last, it says, for with them the wrath of God is finished. There are seven angels, not six, not eight, seven, because seven, of course, is the number of completion. It's uh, six plus one days that God took to uh, create the world. And so seven, of course, in Scripture has become this number symbolic of completion, of finality, of of fullness. And that's the, that's the, the connotation here. That's what the word last connotes, that it's last because it's finally and fully Filled, that is, that the wrath of God is finished, it's done, it's, in a sense, it's it's sevened. Now, that's not in the text, but I'm saying that's the, the meaning of, of what that, that says there when it says it's finished, it's sevened, it's done, it's full. Now, of course, what they've brought here, these seven angels have brought seven plagues, and so what's being brought here is a bad thing. Plagues are bad. I'll just maybe cover that again. Plagues are bad. And uh, so what they bring here is judgment in these bowls of wrath, and we saw that also in the seven seals. Those of you who are reading through Revelation each week will know quite readily that when I say seven seals and seven trumpets, and now we're at seven angels with seven plagues, you'll know that that's the same thing that's been going on in Revelation before. It's the same judgments, but we're going to get more detail here because it's the last, uh, the more final, the more detailed version of it next week that's chapter 16 and following this is actually here in 15 an introduction to this last section in revelation yes i know it's been 40 weeks uh it's been 31 weeks we're we're going to get our way to 40 here soon um so the 15th chapter heightens sort of the mood for 16 and following so it's the last one because with them the wrath of god is finished verse 2 says then i saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire look back at uh, revelation 4 verse 6 chapter 4 verse 6 that's where we first see this sea of glass concept if you remember the first series of visions that open up judgment happen because heaven is opened up and what john sees there is the throne room where the lamb and the four creatures and the 24 elders are all around the throne and they're singing praises to god and what we also see there is this sea of glass look at revelation 4 verse 6 it says, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. It's transparent. You can look through it and see beyond it. And this sea of glass in the Old Testament and in Jewish sort of tradition of faith is the ceiling of this world from our vantage point, and it's the floor of heaven from heaven's vantage point. So the sea of glass is the top from us and the bottom from heaven in the Jewish conception of of heaven and earth. So the sea of glass, it says, is mingled, it's sort of mixed with fire, and that fire connotes some judgment and purity, that when God brings judgment, it's pure. So keep reading. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered... Remember, the word conqueror is used all throughout Revelation to talk about what it means to have relationship with Christ and to stand with Him in glory because of what He's done for us. To be a conqueror is to conquer through Christ. So even those who have been killed this side of heaven, even martyrs, even those who suffer, as we've looked at throughout Revelation, those are still conquerors. You may die this side of heaven and still be a conqueror. In God's economy. So it says, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, that reminds us of what we talked about a couple weeks ago at the end of uh, chapter 13. They're the ones who stand beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. That's a cool phrase there at the end of verse 2 that speaks of their new standing with God as conquerors. They're, they're beside the sea of glass. And so when God brings the judgment, they're there seeing and watching. And what they do is very telling. What they do when God brings the judgment in the next verse here is very telling, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It's not two songs. It says they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And we know it's one song, not two, because this is what they sing. Great and amazing are, and notice the word you or your here. Great and amazing are your deeds. Right off the bat, we know this is not a song about like, How great it is to be saved by you, God. It's not that kind of a song. This is a song of like, God, everything you're doing as I stand on this sea of glass, you are worthy of doing and justified in doing as you bring wrath against sin. That's a different kind of song than just, Jesus, I love you because I feel good. This is a song of, God's going to bring it and yet I still praise Him. That's a different kind of song. It's a different kind of song, and I'll make some application to that uh, very point uh, at the end of uh, exegesis time here. So this is the song. Read along, verse three and uh, verses three and four. Great and amazing are your deeds. That's the first time you are your. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Second time, O King of the Nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Third time. For, fourth time, you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, fifth, for your sixth righteous acts have been revealed. Any question what the emphasis of this song is? And then it says this. We'll finish up here with a couple little comments. After this, I looked. And it says, after this. This is not a way of John saying... After this happens, then this is going to happen. Remember we talked last week and we've talked a few times about this concept of recapitulation, which is all throughout Revelation. If you've been reading through Revelation, you'll know that these themes are hit upon time and time again. And so you'll, you'll hear a theme here, and then there'll be some time that passes and something else happens. Then you'll come back and you'll think, wait, 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 this is exactly what I just heard. So when he says after this, what he means is, after I saw this vision, then I saw this vision. It's not necessarily chronologically as we think of it. So after this, verse 5, after this I looked, and the next vision he saw, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. This, uh, this series of visions begins with the opening of God's uh, heavenly sanctuary, just like we've seen in Revelation 4, and in Revelation 8, and in Revelation 12, and we're seeing it again here, at the beginning of Revelation 15, before God brings judgment, the heavens open. That's a picture of saying, before God brings judgment against evil and sin to stomp it out, you have to look at that picture of who God is to know that He who does it is just and justifier. That's a picture you have to have before you can reckon with the truth that God's going to bring bowls of wrath that are not going to be pretty. We talk a lot about that next week. So this is another series of visions that opens up with heaven. And it says in uh, verse 5, kind of a funny phrase, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. It's another way of saying that that the ark, the testimony, it was called the ark of the covenant, ark of the testimony. In fact, the tent uh, in times was called the tent of witness as a way of talking about that traveling tent that, uh, that, that they carried around with them, where the presence of God was. So there was a temple that was built and that was permanent, but the tabernacle, this tent they, they, they had built, was what carried the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Witness and Testimony. And so it's just another way of saying that the presence of God is being revealed. It was opened. And out of that sanctuary came the Judgment. The seven angels with the seven plagues. It says they're clothed in pure, bright linen. Uh, it's a picture of purity. These are messengers that do something important here. We know that because they're shown as pure. And they're also, in the next phrase, shown as having golden sashes around their chests. We've seen that in chapter 1 with that vision of the Son of Man. The vision of Jesus in chapter 1, 9 through 20. Uh, golden sashes, I believe, is Verse 13. It says this, verses seven and eight, one of the four living creatures, we already saw the four living creatures in chapter four, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, and I want you to look up something here, golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Look back at Revelation five and six, Revelation five, verse eight, and Revelation six, verse nine. It'll help us. Understand a little bit what's going on here with these bowls that are full of wrath. Revelation 5, verse 8, and then 6, verse 9. I love hearing pages turn. Revelation 5, 8 says this: when he had taken the scroll, that is the Lamb, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp. And golden bowls full of incense. Now these bowls here are full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, it says at the end of verse 8 there. Now look at Revelation 6, 9. This will tell us what the prayers of the saints consisted of. Revelation 6, 9 says when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God, those are the saints, and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true. And it says, how long? Those two words are a trigger for any Jew. How long is the prayer of the saints who say how long, O Lord, until, get this, until... Not that you vindicate me, though I know that I will be vindicated because of you. But how long, O Lord, until you vindicate you? That's what the prayers of the saints consist of. How long, O Lord? You can even see that there in Revelation 6. It says, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. How long before you will judge? So that prayer of the saints, here back in Revelation 15, if you're going to turn back to Revelation 15, 7, that prayer is answered with this vision, this picture of the golden bowls now being full of the wrath of God. What were bowls filled with the prayers of the saints are now bowls full of the wrath of God. The anger of God. Which is an important point that we're going to pick up on after we're done here in a second. It says, The seven angels have seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And it says, verse 8, The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God, that's a symbol of his presence. It's sort of like the afterglow of God's work. The smoke is still in the temple. Filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Where it says the seven angels with seven plagues were finished is what we call an inclusio. I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O. It's what we call bookends to the passage. Sometimes it's part of how we know, just a Bible point here, part of how we know what the theme of a certain passage is is because you'll see something at the beginning and you'll see it at the end. Look at verse 1 there. It says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then in verse 8, seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So we know that this whole picture here is about the wrath of God which leads me as I read this picture and all that's going on here I want to ask us this question in your mind I want you to answer this question why why do I worship God why do you worship God when you think of the reasons for why you worship God, the kinds of things that that first and foremost that, that very easily come to mind for us are things like number one, he's perfect. He's perfect. There is there is nothing wrong with God. Everything about him, every nook and cranny of his being and his character and his nature are are one hundred percent holy in every conceivable way. He's perfect, and that's part of why we worship him, which is true. Maybe also he's, he's trustworthy. Everything that God promises will come to pass. I can rely on God to give me riches of relationship as He's promised. If I fall, He's there to pick me up. If I'm lost, He is always there to extend a gentle hand to guide me. He's trustworthy. How about he's loving? We worship Him because he's loving. Now, love, uh, love is a word that we've reinterpreted and redefined based on human-centered principles of reciprocation. In other words, love is something that we've perverted into just a positive trait that makes us feel good, so so I'm kind of narrowly defining it this way here. It's certainly one of the reasons we worship God, but a lot of times when we talk about we worship Him because He, he loves me. He's loving, meaning He loves me. He makes me feel good, He brings me comfort, He's kind. These are the kinds of words that we quickly think of as to why we worship God. (laughs) But, and surprise, surprise, I'm setting you up to point out what's wrong with us. That's only half the story. While these reasons to worship God are certainly valid and they are important, they point out that we so easily fall into the trap of a man-centered, a a, a human-based wisdom that has a conception of God that is truly only half the story. There's a lot of Scripture, of course, that speaks of this perfect, trustworthy, loving God who is gracious to us. But there is a lot of Scripture that speaks to another part of God that we don't like to think or talk about because it challenges the teddy bear relationship with God that we like. Because it makes us feel good. We like a safe grandpa God. We want safe God. We make church about safe grandpa God. A God in whose lap... We can cuddle up and enjoy popcorn and listen to cool stories. In fact, many stay in this little me-shaped box of stunted growth where being a Christian means doing things to make me feel good because, and this is key, we demand a relationship with God that is really about our definitions of Him more than anything else. Let's be frank about this for a second here. In America, this silly definition of following God when and how I want is absolutely rampant. It's rampant and it's killing people. And I'm not speaking metaphorically about killing. Remember we've been saying that all spiritual truth has literal consequences. It is killing people. The safe grandpa God is killing people and some of us are idly watching as the beast that we talked about uses this me-shaped box of churchianity to take people captive. So yes, Scripture speaks of a perfect, trustworthy, and loving God who is gracious to us. But there's another word that describes God as the Bible teaches that completes the picture of who He is if if we are to fully and biblically follow Him. And that word that describes Him is justice. God is just. He is right. He is true. He is the justifier. He is Perfectly holy in character and nature so that when he judges, he is likewise perfect in his judgments. He is exact in his judgments. And because he cannot abide with sin, he cannot have a relationship with sin, he is like we said last week, he is going to trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored and he's already begun. God is going to stomp out sin. And that means that all who reject His gracious offer of atonement through Jesus will likewise be stomped out justifiably. Not how you and I judge. That's not how God works. We don't bring our conceptions of anger and wrath and judgment to the table and impose them on Scripture. It doesn't work that way. This is the kind of justice this is the kind of justice that comes from the heart of God and not from our corrupt heart that makes us Lord and redefines Him after our image so, so god 's justice isn 't like our justice. we have defined justice in ways that bring revenge to others who have wronged us don 't impose that on God because you and I Bring to the table sin. That's not God's primary goal. Injustice. It's a byproduct. The byproduct is that we are likewise vindicated. But that's not God's primary goal. And it is wrong for us to impose that conception of justice on God. You see, His justice isn't primarily about us. Us receiving justice is a byproduct of His justice. His justice is about highlighting His character and His nature and His holiness and bringing Him glory and honor. It's about righting the most egregious wrong that history has ever known in that we and Satan rebelled against Him in sin. It's the worst thing that's ever happened in history. That will be the wrong that is righted when he brings judgment so the question i want you to answer for yourself today is do you worship god for his justice can you stand like these saints beside the sea of glass and say just and true are you do you worship God for His justice? Or do you only worship a God of kindness and grace and mercy and love? Is your worship of God more actually about you? And on your terms, than it is about Him? The truth with which we need to grapple is this. This is the the tweet, the hashtag, the Facebook. (coughs) We are, if we're honest with ourselves, far more interested in vindicating ourselves than we are God being vindicated. We are quite often more interested and engaged in vindicating ourselves than we are God being vindicated. And we orient our lives. We orient the way we talk, the way we spend our money. We orient our lives around our conceptions of Him that don't even meet our deepest need. The way we approach our relationship with God is often on our terms so that we can coerce from Him what we think we need. Which means we come to our worship of Him with things in mind that we like about Him because they fit our expectations. The truth of Revelation and this passage is that God cannot and He will not be coerced nor manipulated. Because you and I don't get to set the terms of this relationship. God is perfectly good and holy. And He is going to return and He is going to vindicate Himself. And the only hope anyone will have of escaping his justifiable anger against sin is to sing this song. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are Your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You, for Your righteous acts have been revealed. Do You worship God because He's just. Let's pray together.